Good morning, church. So I wanted to start off with a question this morning. Have you ever experienced something that was so absolutely incredible that it affected every area of your life? I'm not even getting into scriptural matters, but something that you experienced in this world, has it been so amazing that it affected every area of your life? I've had a few of those experiences myself, but one of the most positive, because sometimes they're negative, it affects everything, but one of the most positive was in 2007 in Tennessee was the first time that I ever had a sandwich called the Monte Cristo at a restaurant called Bennigan's. And for those of you that have ever had a Bennigan's Monte Cristo, you know the pure joy that I am talking about. There are some places that make a Monte Cristo that it's just a ham and cheese sandwich on, uh, on French toast for bread. And that's good. But that's no Bennigan's Monte Cristo. This is a triple-decker sandwich with ham, turkey, Swiss, and American cheese. And then after they make the sandwich, they cut it into quarters, batter it, and deep-fry the sandwich. And then sprinkle confectionery sugar on top and then give you a side of raspberry preserves to dip it in. This sandwich set the standard for every sandwich I would ever eat in the rest of my life. Explains a lot, doesn't it? And I kind of became this Monte Cristo evangelist. I I was telling everyone I knew about this amazing sandwich that I had. And if I had friends that were there in the area, you haven't experienced this? You haven't had one? Let's go. I'll buy it for you. You need to experience this. It was wonderful. And I know it sounds silly, but for a time, and for that time in my life, it gave me kind of like a side goal to work toward. I had my main mission in life, but it was something that I wanted to work toward on my life. I wanted to be able to recreate this sandwich at home. I wanted other people to experience the pure joy and deliciousness that I experienced the first time I had this sandwich. That one, that one sandwich, it sounds silly, but it affected almost every area of my life. And in a much more serious manner, in a much more serious application, this passage out of Deuteronomy shows that this is the effect that God has on His people. Or the effect that, God, the, the effect that it should have, that, he, that God Himself should have on His people. When you see and experience what God has done for His people and throughout history, throughout redemption, throughout the lives of the people in His church... It should make an impact and affect every area of a believer's life. Or as Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience God and it will change your life. And when you experience the living God, when you interact with Him, when, you, when His Word takes root in your heart, it affects every area of your life. And as our passage in Deuteronomy shows the effect that takes place, I would even argue so far as to say that every aspect of a believer's life is meant to glorify God. Every aspect of a believer's life is meant 
to glorify God. Not, not some areas of your life, not most areas of your life, but every area of a believer's life is meant to bring glory to God. It's not something that just happens for a couple hours on a Sunday morning. It's not just slapping a, a, a Jesus bumper sticker on your car. It's not reading one of those posts on, on social media that says, if you're not ashamed of the, of the Gospel, then you'll share this picture of Jesus. Nothing like guilting people into sharing pictures of a white Jesus. No. Every aspect of a believer's life is meant to point to the glory of God. And we see this unpacking in three specific ways in this passage. First, how the Word directs our action. As our lives are meant to to glorify God, we see how the Word directs our action. Secondly, we see how the Word directs our time. Not just the actions that we take, but the time that we have. And lastly, how the Word directs our worship. So as every aspect of a believer's life is meant to glorify God, it's done by the word, how the Word directs our action, how the Word directs our time, and how the Word directs our worship. And before I go any further, let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank You for this time that we can come together and sit under Your Word, that You can speak to us through Your Word, that we have the freedom to come together, that we have the the joy and honor and privilege of, of having access to Your written Word that is living and active. And God, I pray that as we sit and, and look at Your Word, as we, as we read Your Word, as we hear Your Word, that You would spoke through a broken mouthpiece like myself to convey Your Gospel truth, Your love for Your people, Your redemption through Jesus Christ. Be with us here in this time. And bring glory to Your name alone. And we pray this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Now, full disclosure, this verse is actually a a very important verse to me. This verse is one of uh, my core values of approaching ministry. This is part of my personal philosophy of approaching ministry. And this week and next, I'm going to be focusing on the the verses that have shaped my personal approach to ministry. Uh, This week, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, and next week, uh, Paul's charge to Timothy to make disciples who make disciples. But that'll be next week. But this passage this passage has, has stirred my heart uh, for quite some time now. When I first started studying Hebrew in seminary, this was one of the first passages that we unpacked together as a class as we walked through uh, not just the translation, but uh, the translation, the grammar, but also the application of what the Hebrew text means for God's people today. And it, it captivated my heart, specifically in the manner how the knowledge of God specifically directs worship and family life. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Ahad, Hero Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh 
is one. Remember, anytime you see Lord all caps in the Old Testament, that's the covenant name of the God of Israel. I am Yahweh. That is the name He gave His people so He can make Himself known. Yahweh, our God. Yahweh is one. And early in my Christian life, as a young believer, when I would read the Old Testament, when I viewed the Old Testament Scriptures, I generally viewed the Old Testament as a collection of rules and a description of this God who is distant and detached from His people. But the more I studied the Old Testament, the more I read and saw the connection from the Old Testament to the New, I saw that it was revealing the Lord as a compassionate Father over His people that would promise redemption, that cared for and provided and led His people. I saw how the Old Testament showed the heart of God and how that was to play out in God's people's lives. And so the first thing that we see in the Shema is how the Word directs our action. Hear, O Israel, the, Yahweh our, our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This passage is a verb-filled action statement for God's people. Hear, love, teach, talk, bind, write. Understanding and knowing who God is and what He has done should drive God's people to action. Hear, Israel. And not just within the geographical confines of, of the nation of Israel, but Israel was a, a, a description of God's people. God's people, hear this. Listen to God's Word. Pay attention. Love Yahweh, the covenant God, your God, with all of your heart and your soul and with all of your might. Later, it's recorded in Matthew 22 and Mark 12, the Pharisees are trying to test Jesus and they ask Him, what is the greatest commandment? They're trying to set up a trap for Him. Out of all of the commandments, will He say that one commandment is greater than the other? And Jesus quotes the Shema saying, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And then he adds on from Leviticus 19 to love your neighbor as yourself because when you have those two, that is the complete summary of the, of the law in a summary statement. The loving God with everything that you have and loving your neighbor as yourself covers the law. So love God with everything that you have and teach these things to your children. And I know this, for some people, uh, some people this is, is, actually some people I think have even been offended by this, but according to the Shema, the primary responsibility for the instruction and spiritual care of your children is on you. Parents, you are the specific and sole responsibility to instruct your children. Not as a guilt trip, but as 
a people who love the Lord and love His Word. It is your job to teach your children who He is and what He has done. And far too often, and I am guilty of this myself, we have relinquished that responsibility to other people. Other people that we trust, other people that we think can do a good job to our Sunday school teachers or even to, our, to pastors. Uh, we've given up the responsibility of teaching our children to, to schools and, and things like that. But Scripture says, parents, it is your job to teach your children the ways of the Lord what He has done, who He is, and how He cares for His people. And in fact, I've joked for years as I've worked in youth ministry for the past 20 years that if parents, and I'm including myself in this, if we truly embraced the role that God had given us, there would not necessarily be a need for youth pastors. It is a heavy responsibility that the Lord places on those of us who are parents. But for all people, talk of these things. Talk about the ways of the Lord. Talk about who He is. Talk about His goodness. That connects with the teaching, but you don't have to talk about the the Lord in such a formal Bible study fashion. In order to, to talk about the Lord to your coworkers or to your neighbors, to the people that you want to share the Gospel with, you don't have to sit down and say, well, we need to have a Bible study beginning in Romans 1 and unpacking. You don't, it doesn't need to be that formal. But in everything that we do, you and I, in all of our actions throughout the day, we're invited to have ongoing conversations where we talk freely about the covenant God and who He is and what He has done for His people. And the next two verbs actually stand out within our our Christian cultural context of binding and writing the Word of the God the, the, the Hebrew people would have these uh, little boxes or, or uh, containers. Uh, they're called phylacteries or teflon that they would actually have little scrolls with Scripture that they would wear like a headband or that they would wear on their hands during prayer. And it was meant to be a, a reminder of the Word of God and the importance that it played in the lives and the, the worship of God's people. And when they would write the, the text in their home, there was a little box called a mezuzah that you would put these, these scrolls, oftentimes the, this text here, the Shema, that they would have in the mezuzah on their doorpost as a reminder every time they walk through the door, a reminder of the covenant God who loves and has redeemed His people. Now, we don't do this today, but the truth is still the same. That these were meant to set God's people apart. That God's people are meant to live and act and carry themselves differently from the world around them. Within our current cultural, our Christian context, we don't have to adhere to the strict Jewish laws and customs But as God's people, we're still called to be set apart from a world that has rejected the law of God. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul warns the church to flee from idolatry and uh, and the discernment that comes within Christian freedom. And then he gives the charge in 
1 Corinthians 10.31 saying, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Whatever action you take, whatever, uh, wherever you go, whatever you are doing in your life, your action is meant to be done to the glory of God. And so Christian, when you hear the Word of God, do you hear? As the charge says, hear, O Israel, hear, Oh, God's people, are you listening? Are you paying attention? Are you devoting time to receiving the Word of God? Does the Word of God stir your heart, your very soul, to love? To love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might? Parents, are you actively teaching your children about who God is and what He has done? Believer, do you talk about what God has done in your own life? You don't have to give a complete redemptive historical lesson, but do you talk about what God has done in your own life? Is your life lived in such a way that it is set apart from the world around you? Or in a summary statement, does your life dictate how you approach the Word of God? Or does the Word of God dictate how you approach the action of your life? And the Word does not just direct a believer's action, but it also affects how the Word directs our time. God's people are instructed to love God with all all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. It says that God's Word is written on the hearts of His people. This is an implicit reminder that God's Word is always with God's people. I'm pretty sure that everyone in here, whenever you go somewhere, you're taking your heart with you. You're taking your soul and your strength, your might. You're taking that with you wherever you go. And so if if your very life is consumed with a love for the Lord then your time is affected in every part by the Word. Look specifically at the instruction to parents. As he says in verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. There's a, a parallelism here when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise, whenever, whatever it is that you are doing, if you're inactive, if you're active, when you're going to bed, when you're waking up in the morning, at all times of the day, you have an opportunity to talk about the goodness of who God is. You have an opportunity to teach your children, to talk with other people about what this covenant God has done not just in the lives of His people, but in your very life. And so make use of the time that you have. When you're pouring out your bowl of cereal, that's an opportunity to talk about the ways that God has provided for His people. 
if you're an outdoorsy type of person, if you like to go hiking, or even if you're just taking your, your kids to go play outside, or if you're on a flag football team, or whatever it is that you do outside, that is an opportunity to talk about the beauty of creation and the design, the intricate design that God has made in this world. Whenever you have neighbors that are different from you, if they look different, if they worship different, if they talk different, that is an opportunity to talk about how all people are made in the image of God and the beauty of God that is in, within all people. Even if they're not a believer, there is still a glimpse of the beauty of God. One of the things that we like to do at dinner, we ask our children two specific questions. First, what was your favorite part of the day? Because it's good for them to remember, you know, there have been bad things in the day, but it's good to remember what are some of the great things that happened today. But then we also ask them, what is the worst part of your day? Because that specifically opens up an, an opportunity for us to show, to show our children even in those bad times, the Lord is still with you. He still cares for you. He's still providing for us. In the best of times and in the worst of times, we have opportunities and we have time to talk about the Lord. Every part of your life is an opportunity to share the wonder of God. His creativity his power, his justice, his mercy, and his grace. We don't bind or write God's scriptures as part of our worship, unless you're into getting scriptures tattooed on yourself. That's, that's a whole separate conversation, but that's not this right now. But God's people are called to be set apart from the world around them. Your very life is meant to be set apart and look different from the world around you. Your personal life, your household. Not just look different. Not that there's a specific ways that, that Christians should dress and you have to have a certain appearance in order to be a Christian. But you're called to live differently. It's more than just making sure that you go to church X amount of Sundays out of the year. It's more than just a couple hours of work or making sure, oh, well, I did my, my, uh, my daily quiet time this week, so I've, I've checked it off my list. It's more than just putting in a couple hours here and there. But a believer's life is meant to, to remember, to focus on, to bring glory to God Seven days a week, 24 hours a day. You're called to be 168 hour a week Christian. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter is charging the church, saying that the, church, the believer is always to be prepared to give an answer when someone asks you, about your faith. When people ask you, why do you believe what you believe? How do you know what you believe is true? Peter is saying, know what you believe 
at all times. So that at any time when people come and ask, why do you do this? Why do you believe this? God's people are called to be ready at all times. To say, this is the God whom I serve. This is why I give Him my worship. This is why I'm focused on Him. Not because of any of my work, but because of what He has done. And so I challenge you, spend time in the Word. I encourage you to spend time in prayer. We just had a whole month focusing on the importance and the power of prayer. Let the Word take root in your life so it affects your action, your time. So that way, when you're at home, when you're at work, when you're at school, when you're playing basketball, when you're mowing the lawn, when you're playing Nintendo, whatever it is that you are doing, let your action and your time bring glory to God in your breakfast and in your lunch and in your dinner. Bring glory to the Lord. Don't just wait for Sunday, but let every hour of the day be an opportunity to remember and to share the glory of this covenant God who redeems His people. And finally, the Word of God doesn't just direct a believer's action in time, but the Word directs our worship. It would be easy to look at this passage and focus on the verbs and feel burdened by the work that a believer is to do. To do this. To, to, to love with everything that you have. To, to teach. To talk. To, to, to be set apart. To do all of these things. It could feel like a heavy burden. But look at what motivates this action in the first place. Go back to verse 4. The beginning of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. This is a reminder for God's people. Remember, Yahweh, this covenant God of Israel, the great I Am, is our God. He has made Himself known and He has put Himself in relationship with His people. He is one. And oftentimes we look at this through our our Christian eyes, and we immediately want to jump as this being a proof text to confirm the Trinity. It says right there that the, the God is one. But that wasn't unpacked at this point in, in redemptive history. Israel had no idea or concept of the Trinity. And so that is not the root definition of what we're getting at here, but within the context. To say that Yahweh is one. To say that the Lord is one. That He is unique. There is no God like our God. The God of Israel. The covenant God. The great I Am. The One who spoke reality into existence. The One who redeems His people. There is no God like our God. He's not a philosophy. He's not a, a form of behavioral modification but He is the living God who works on behalf of His people. And in verse 6, these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. We stand at this point in history. We look at the whole of Scripture 
And we are reminded that God is the one who is doing the writing on the believer's heart. In Jeremiah 31, verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put My law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be My people. We serve a God who guides and watches over His people. He is the one who takes the initiative. He is the one who does the action. He is the one who gave the law and when His people could not keep the law, the Father sent the Son to redeem a rebellious people. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. The Word became flesh. Came to dwell among His own creation to declare the coming Kingdom of God. And in the Gospel of John, it's recorded that as Jesus was teaching, He specifically says in chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. That was not just a a throwaway statement, but that was a statement that the people of Israel automatically jumped to the context of the Shema, saying, there is no God other than God. And so for for Jesus to say, I and the Father are one, He is directly declaring His divinity and His relationship to the Father. Later in John 17, as He's praying His priestly prayer, that they may all, all be one just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. Jesus told His people, His disciples, that He and the Father are one. That there is no God like our God. And His audience knew what He meant. They knew that Jesus was saying that He is the Lord that is spoken of. When the Jewish people pray the Shema. When they declare Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And this Jesus, this God in the flesh didn't just come to teach His people, but He came to give Himself as a perfect sacrifice. That the sin in the hearts of God's people, the sin in your own very heart, the sin that according to Scripture condemns you to death. Jesus took those sins, your sins, upon Himself. They were nailed with Him to the cross. And they died there. And in His resurrection, He secured your eternal salvation and gave you the holy status as a child of the living God. And so does the Word of God direct your worship? As the Shema shows, every part of a believer's life is supposed to to point to worship. is supposed to give glory to God. Every action, every hour is a chance to reflect on the glory of God. 
And so are there any areas of your life that you are holding back? Is your worship limited to a few hours on a Sunday morning? Are there areas of your life that you want to to withhold from God saying, you know, I'm going to give you this, but this is mine. I'm going to keep this separate. And God, you cannot control that. I'll give God Sundays. But Friday night, Saturday night, Monday morning, that's my time. That's my activity. God does not get that. Christian, look at the work that God has done. Look at His creation and His provision and the redemption that He has given. And I would encourage you to let your worship be wholehearted with every aspect of your life, with every action, with every hour, and with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to ask a very pointed question of Christian, what are you glorifying? The actions that take place in your life, the way that you conduct yourself, the way that you carry yourself, are you pointing to yourself? Is your time reserved for your own interests and your own gratification? Is your life lived in such a way that you might sacrifice an hour or choose during your week, but that your worship is actually focused on your own comfort, your own self-glorification? Or, do the actions of your life reflect a thankfulness for what God has done. The way that you live your life, the way that you carry yourself, the way that you work and live and play, is it done in a way that brings glory to God? The time that you have during your week, your work time, your study time, your rest time, the time that you have with your children, your friends, your neighbors, the times that you have when there is no one else around Does your time bring glory to God? And your worship, what is your heart focused on? Is your life lived in such a way that your life is a life of worship, bringing glory to God, not just in a worship service where we sing and hear the preached Word, but the way that you interact with your neighbors the way that you disagree with people, the way that you carry yourself as a Christian is every aspect of your life, your heart, your soul, and your might, is your worship giving glory to God. Christian, what are you glorifying? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we come before You and we confess that far too often we have not loved You wholeheartedly. That we have not glorified You in our actions. That we have been slothful with our time. That far too often we want to worship ourselves 
and find comfort in our pleasures. God, we confess these things and, and we lay them at the foot of Your throne and, and we say, God, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. Remind us of the love that You have for us as Your people. Remind us of the, uh, the amazing work that You have done through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remind us that we have been bought with a price. And so as we live our life in action and with our time and with our worship, we're not trying to earn Your love, but we are living in such a way because You loved us first. Let us be set apart to the glory of Your name alone. And we pray this in the holy name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.